0: Developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake. I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. On the show today, we have one of the leading business and leadership consultants in the world. He's a multiple author, a TEDx speaker. And he has an unquenchable thirst for knowledge. It's John Spence. But before we get a chance to speak with John, it's a Leadership Hacker News. The global pandemic is forcing companies to adapt quickly and to change, to redesign their products and services Or even create completely new propositions to meet the demands of its clients, customers and its workforce. And what's apparent is organisations are rushing to the needs of their customers and their workforce readily. And now is absolutely the time for innovation and new ways of working. We have restaurants and cafes and small shops that are turning to deliveries and providing doorstep delivery services and vital community services. We have vacuum cleaner manufacturers who are now retooled to provide ventilators for people who are suffering ill health. We have alcohol firms and beer manufacturers who have now pivoted and are making hand sanitizers. So whilst this is a time of challenge and stress and anxiety for most businesses, and I get that part of that journey myself and our business is suffering with the same thinking and behaviors too. It's also the time for innovation and change. And by thinking outside the box and thinking differently, we're able to create new and emerging opportunities in amongst this crisis. And here's the thing. If we look at our language over time in Chinese, the word crisis means both danger and opportunity. And in India, the word you which we may be familiar with around innovation and frugal innovation also means joining or union where from adversity we can find opportunity. And, and even in English, The word adversity represents a difficult or tricky situation, but not catastrophic. As leaders, it's our role to lead new thinking and new ways of working. So join with me and congratulate those organisations who are pivoting and showing innovation. And join me and congratulate the great work of all those who are working through adversity. That's been the Leadership Hacking News. If you have any news, insights, or information you think would be great to share on the show, please get in touch with our social media sites. Today's guest is recognized as one of the top business consultants and leaders in the world. He was named by American Management Association as one of America's top 50 leaders to watch. In that list, alongside Larry Page of Google and Jeff Bezos of Amazon, to name but a few. He's gone on to write five books, and has also featured a TEDx speaker. I'm delighted to welcome to the show John Spence. It's a pleasure to be with you, my friend. John, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. Just to give the folk who are listening some backstory, one of the things that first intrigued me about you when we met is that you've been in leadership roles and uh, leading teams for a long time. In fact, by the age of 26, you were already a CEO of a Rockefeller Foundation. How did that come about?
1: Uh, it's It's a twisted tale, but I'll go through it quickly. I um, I grew up in Miami, Florida, and a very wealthy family. My father was an attorney and uh, went to one of the top prep schools in America. And when I graduated, I got admitted to several different colleges. And I chose the University of Miami in Miami, Florida, because it was clo- close to my boat and my girlfriend, which is not why you should choose university, uh, which is also why uh, about a year later, I failed out and was kicked out of the university. Uh, I won't go through the whole thing, but I moved to another town uh, where I live now, Gainesville, Florida, where there's another university, the University of Florida. And I applied there and they refused to accept me. So I went to a tiny little college, restarted uh, over completely and uh, graduated there, got into the University of Florida and graduated number three in the United States in my major. Uh, That's when I was hired by the Rockefellers. I was 23 years old. And uh, I quickly, after about six months or so, the the current CEO picked me as his right hand man, and I would go into all meetings with him, board meetings, follow him around, do things like that. And a few years later, uh, he faltered pretty dramatically, and they put me in place to just sort of hold the place down for a little while. And things went so well that they left me in. So I, I was at 26. I was running a Rockefeller Foundation, International Rockefeller Foundation with uh, projects going on in 20 countries around the world and knew knew no idea what I was doing, but it seemed to turn out okay.
0: And I guess it's not just being in the right place at the right time that got you noticed. If you maybe single out one or two of those things, what do you think it was that gave you that edge at that time?
1: There were were three things. Uh, Number one is I said yes to pretty much anything. If they needed someone to go to Costa Rica to negotiate a deal, uh, when I was, before I was CEO, I'd put up my hand and go. If they needed someone to take on a project that no one else wanted, I would take it. So I pretty much said yes to everything to learn as much as I possibly could. Uh, number two, I was very, very, very lucky to get a mentor. Uh, Charlie Owen, who was Mr. Rockefeller's right-hand man, would come into my office every Monday, put a book on my desk. And on Friday, uh, he would take me to lunch and I would have to make a book report. And he would not only say, what did you learn, but what will you apply? And I think that was the big differentiator. It's not just what did you read and learn, but what are three specific action steps you're going to take as a result of what you just read? And then he would hold me accountable for doing that in my job. And then the last one was asking for help. Uh, I had a really good team around me. I had some very... Brilliant board of directors. I had three billionaires on my board. Everybody else was worth $100 million. And I wasn't afraid to pick up the phone or send them a note and say, I need some help. I need some guidance. Uh, Because I really realized I failed out of the University of Miami because I did not ask for help. I didn't go to the other students. I didn't have a study group. I didn't talk to professors. I tried to do it all by myself. And that got me failure. When I got to be CEO, I realized I needed all the help I could humanly get from everybody around me thinking about the discipline of book on your desk reading that book
0: in the time that we've known each other i think i described your office as a library of leadership how many books do you reckon you've read over that time
1: i've i've read 100 to 120 books every year since 1989 i've got a little over 2000 books in my office but i also have a private library at home my office is just business books and then my home is is history and classics and things like that uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a, I am I'm. see that as a big part of my job. How, how do you read so much? Well, part of the reason is this is what I do for a living is take in information to help other people. Right. And I guess information comes from that whole
0: foundation you created from learning and listening to other people, right?
1: Well, it comes from a lot of places asking for help, mentors, coaches, colleagues. But, for example, when I was at the foundation very, very young, before they named me CEO, we would be sitting in a board meeting. And one of the billionaires would say, well, anybody have an idea on this? And I'd raise my hand. I'd say, well, I, I read over here in Tom Peters' book, this, that, and the other. But I think this also has to do with Jim Collins' book on this. And then I, I got one more idea I read from Chester Elton. And I think those three things apply. And I still remember one of the billionaires. I love John's ideas. He's one smart kid. Let's do that stuff. And I'm thinking, none of those were my ideas. <laughs> but yeah, so it's personal experience uh, and the reading, study, and learning I'm not a genius. I just have more access to ideas and information than most people. That's a great question. Do you, though? Do you have more access or do you have more discipline? Where do you think it comes from? I have more discipline. <laughs> Anybody can buy books, uh, which lots of people have lots of books. Uh, it takes the discipline to read them and, and apply them. I mean, again, there's that, that step. There's always that second step of not just what did I read and learn, but how will I use it? So how do you go about creating that discipline, the time to be able to read 100 books a year? Uh, I read a minimum of one hour every morning. Uh, that is the way I get my day started. I, uh, up until the coronavirus, I would take myself to a local restaurant uh, and sit down. And for a minimum of an hour, I would I read, or still to this day, I read Fortune, Forbes, Inc., Harvard Business Review, Strategy and Business and part of a book. Uh, also when I, I usually travel again, we're at an interesting time right now. Um, I usually travel about 200 days a year. So I, uh, I'm very disciplined that the minute I get to the airport to the minute I get home, uh, I read at every spare moment I have. I don't watch TV. Uh, I don't, uh, I'm not, believe it or not, as a professional speaker, who's spoken to audiences as large as 26,000, I'm a very, very introverted so when I'm on the road, I stay in my hotel room and read and study. Uh, and then I also when I read a book, there's a couple of things that are important to me. And I read a lot on uh, on Kindle now. But if I can get 50 or 60 pages into the book and I haven't underlined anything, I just close the book and put it away. Because I figure if the if, if the author can't teach me something in the first 20, 25 percent of the book, They're probably not going to teach me anything spectacular in the last 150 pages. I might have missed an idea, but I I don't want to waste my time. It's a good strategy and a discipline strategy that makes stuff get done, right? Yeah. And then I I also, I have all kinds of symbols that if it's a hardcover book, I put a pound sign for numbers. I put an R, circle it, uh, which is reread. I underline it. What I'll do is I read all the way through the book. Then I go back and reread just my highlighting and I make notes off that. And then uh, I'm sort of a freak. I read, I dictate my highlighting into a Word doc, and then I have all those saved. So I can take a, a book of 250 pages and get it down to maybe three pages of notes of the key ideas. And I have th- literally thousands of pages of those. Wow. That's
0: amazing. And I think for anybody listening to the show today who doesn't have this as a foundation in their life, what would be your recommendation? How would you get them to start?
1: Uh, 12 minutes a day during the week. That's an hour a week. Uh, To give you an example, the average college graduate in most countries, yes, average university graduate only reads a half a book a year for self-improvement or to get better at their job, what I call a skills-based book, a half a book a year. If you were to read one book every other month, six books a year, you'd be in the top 1% in your country. If you read 12 books a year, you're in the top 1% in the world. So you, nobody needs to read 100 or 120 books. I'm a freak. It, it's my job. <laughs> that's just, it's what I. It's part of what I do because I see this foundation for my career. But if you just took 12 minutes a day during the week, that's an hour a week. That's, a, that's probably four or five books a year. Uh, if you're a semi-good reader, that just puts you in the top, almost in the top 1% in your entire country for self-learning. If you're consistent in doing that in three or four years, you've now really piled up some interesting information, ideas, things that when combined with your real what I call the adjacent new, with your real life experience, what you've been doing in business, your, you know, everything you've done up to then, you take this interesting new idea you read out of a book, you put the two together, and that becomes uh, a new idea. You know, this is a new innovation, a new idea, a new strategy that didn't exist before the book ideas and your personal experience. And so and if you were to read, you know, 20 minutes a day, you can see the numbers. It's it's not really that challenging. Again, it just takes discipline. I guess ideas breed ideas and innovation
0: breeds innovation, doesn't it? So absolutely. Great advice, John. No, my pleasure. One of the things that I was really intrigued about when I watched your TED talk was around the whole principle of AQ. Now, our listeners will know the principles of IQ, the intelligent quotient. They'll probably be familiar with the emotional quotient, so the EQ and how we can respond and use our behaviors to respond to behaviors. But tell us a little bit about what AQ means and how our leaders might apply that.
1: Well, it, let's, let's look at the other two quickly. IQ is another word that I use for competence. you got to be good at your job. You don't have to, you know, be a a NASA rocket scientist and have 40 advanced, 48 advanced degrees. You just got to be really competent at your job. EQ, emotional quotient, which I see as sort of self-awareness and empathy put together, an area I struggle in traumatically, is now actually more important than IQ. If you've got a modicum level of competence, your EQ will be more important. I've done tons of workshops with organizations where it's usually three or five to one EQ over IQ is importance of a leader. However, AQ, which is your adaptability or agility quotient, I see as the most important one going forward. And the amount of turmoil we're facing in the world, technology, things are moving so fast. Only people who are agile, adaptable, nimble can embrace new ideas, let go of old ideas that don't work, try new things, uh, take uh, prudent business risks. Uh, and be fast and not just embrace change, but drive change, that is what I believe is going to be the main driver of leadership success. if you're If you're competent and you can get along with other people, but you're not nimble, you're in trouble. If you add the three together, to me, you've got the foundation for being a highly successful leader moving forward. And what do you think are the key components of that AQ? What would be one of the things that I might
0: want to focus on first?
1: Well, AQ, it almost all comes down to what we've been talking about is exposing yourself to new and different information and not just business information. Go go outside of your normal realm. Uh, Read like I read physics and astronomy to try to expose myself to ideas that are so big and so challenging that it stretches my mind. I I look at art. I do other things, music to try to understand the craft behind those uh, and all these other ideas and other people. Um, you know, going and meeting people that do things that you don't do and asking about what are their best ideas? How did they learn what they do? So the more information and ideas you take in. Now, the other thing that is really important, and it's one of the the foundations of becoming an expert at anything is, well, I'll give you the four P's of expertise. This comes from a book called the Cambridge Handbook of Expertise and Expert Performance, a 1,800 page book. Uh, written by experts about how to become an expert. And they say there's four Ps. The first P is passion, uh, which just stands to reason you're not going to become truly world-class of something if you're not passionate about it. Uh, The the next one is persistence. And we've seen from Malcolm Gladwell's work and others that that's about 10 years or 10,000 hours of being persistent in the third P, which is practice. But it's a special kind of practice called deliberate practice and will deliver it, practice says, is you've got a coach, a trainer, a colleague, a friend, but someone pushing you to keep practicing and practicing on the hardest stuff, the most challenging stuff, which leads to the fourth and final P, which I think is the foundation of AQ, which is pattern recognition. Once you study a subject deeply, you've studied it for years, you've, re- you've read, you've asked questions, you've got a mentor, a coach, all of a sudden that That it becomes clear to you and you see patterns that other people don't see. Those patterns are what allow you to anticipate things that are coming down the pike. So someone that's nimble, agile, adaptable, part of the reason they can adapt so quick is because they have identified the pattern before it fully unfolds. And that time between when they've identified it and other people see it is their competitive advantage.
0: I love that, John. I think it's a great example of a simple model, but actually helps us just understand that, you know, underlying all of this is that lifelong learning, that
1: curiosity that in order to get that pattern recognition, you've got to have the foundations, right? You said the word curiosity. You've got to, you've got to constantly be interested in things, looking at things, learning things, um, being curious and wanting to understand things deeply. Nailed it. Nailed it. Now, you've come renowned
0: for making the very complex awesomely simple. In fact, that was the title of your last
1: book. How did that come about? That is exactly what we were discussing, pattern recognition. I was looking at businesses. I've, I've had the great fortune of working with companies all over the world from startups to you know, Apple and Microsoft and you know Fortune 5 companies. And every time I got in a company, I looked for the patterns. Uh, the patterns of what they were doing really well that allowed them to, to be the leader in their industry. Also, the patterns of what I saw in companies that were struggling, dysfunctional, and failing. And after years and years of looking at that, uh, also, there was this really, uh, while I was doing that, I found this really cool software program called Wordle. And what Wordle allows you to do is to put the text of a document in there, and it finds the pattern. Uh, it takes out the ands and the does and the uh's and all that stuff. And it looks for the words that appear over and over again, and then it creates a word cloud, and that word cloud shows you the pattern of the book. So I I loaded my book, awesomely simple, in there uh, to help me understand the the draft of it, and then I went to a bunch of my friends that were authors uh, and asked for drafts of their book or you know a copy of their books, and I took a whole, well I won't drag you through it, but I put about two hundred and seventy thousand pages of the top leadership literature, the top articles, everything I could find in there, and it spit out a pattern. And that pattern is what became the foundation of not only my book, but what I teach today to companies I work with.
0: What a great idea and using technology as well to help us find that thematic approach to how we lead. So in your book as well, you you call out a certain number of characteristics or strategies that will help business leaders. Yes,
1: yes. And, uh, and they're nothing... Uh, surprisingly new. They're, again, fundamental, but there's a a big thing called the knowing-doing gap. A lot of people know these things, but they don't actually do them every day. They don't implement them and take action on them. Uh, So part of the book, and I'm not plugging the book, because I've got lots of questions, workshops, uh, things to think about. Because again, it's not just reading it, it's reading it, learning it, and applying it. And these things I teach people, they go, oh, yeah. And I go, now, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 world class and 1 being terrible, where would you currently rate yourself and or your organization? And when they rate it a 3 or a 5, they look at me and go, oh, I, I know this, but I'm just not doing it effectively every day. And in order to create some of that activity that expedites actions, one of the things you
0: talk about in your book is that kind of creating urgency. I think most people would recognize that urgency is an incredibly important part of shifting behaviors and creating some, some shift in status quo. How do you do that without creating panic?
1: It's a super, super good question. Um, I looked at a lot of the, the um, research and writings on change management and change theory. And then again, with, a, with what I've seen in companies I've been working with for now, I'm in my 28th year, there's three steps to this. And there are two steps. And the third one is creating urgency. Step one is you have to create what I call an irresistible case for change. And irresistible isn't like mm, chocolate cake. Irresistible is you cannot resist. It's, it's happening. You have no choice. Uh, again, we're, we're recording this during the pandemic. Uh, people are being sent home to work for their homes. We're doing social distancing and uh, by voluntary isolation. You have no choice. You're not allowed to leave your house. So this is going to break a lot of people's patterns. This is going to make them adopt new ideas, new ways of working, new things happening, whether they want it to or not. So, to, in any organization, to create a sense of urgency, step one is to let people know that change is mandatory. You have no choice. Now, after you've done that, the next thing to do is to immediately tell them about the amazing future that will be there. Uh, we're going to do this for the company. This new software is going to allow us to do these things, um, being able to serve this customer. Quickly is going to allow the company to make more profit, but whatever it is, but you need to take that that irresistible case for change and balance it with a vivid, compelling, exciting vision of what the change will lead to. We do the change. Here's the new future. Here's the better future. And then quickly, you want to tell people we need to move to the new future. We we got to get there. We can't go back. Uh, and that's what creates a sense of urgency because if it takes too long, people sort of say, "Oh, this too shall pass." and they get resistant, and you get a big group of people that just don't want to change, and that will slow everything down. And one other thing that adds to that, that allows or motivates that sense of urgency, is getting what's called a guiding coalition in your organization. And that should be your entire senior team, whether it's two or three or five or 12, being 10,000% committed to the change, and being the leading example of embracing the change and driving the change. But you also want to look for sort of the influencers in your organization, the people who may not have a fancy title, but they've been there for five or 10 or 15 years and everybody looks up to them, you know, and if Steve thinks it's a good idea, I'm on board. You know, if John thinks it's a bad idea, I ain't doing it. You want to get that handful of people also as your, your change agents, your change cheerleaders to create and, and let everybody know we got to go and we got to go right now.
0: So I recognize the, the patterns you just shared and, and, and are very familiar and experienced those in terms of how I help my clients through that change. One of the things I also find, John, is that when we're creating that urgency, we're providing that vision for the change in the future and we've got the right people around us, we still find that there are natural pockets of resistance. What's the most common thing that you notice as a resistor or a big resistor to change?
1: It's fear. People like stability uh, and safety and um it's they, when people are faced with what they perceive as negative change they go through a cycle of fear, denial, anger, uh um, begging, you know, trying to negotiate and it goes they go through all these emotions and actually they're the same emotions that people feel when someone close to them passes away. So and and you know to some person changes we're changing the software company, we're pivoting to another some people it's you gave me a new desk. You moved me to a new desk. You actually, as far as you, were, gave me a new chair. I love this chair. I've had this chair for five years. It's in the shape of my butt. You know, I, did, I don't want anyone to take my chair away. And you have to, as a leader, understand that change drives lots of emotions. Fear, depression, uh, sense of overwhelm, sense of uh, optimism. At first, you have in, uninformed pessimism people don't know what's going on with a change and they're scared. Uh, Eventually you start to get uh, informed optimism until finally you get adoption. And that's when people say, okay, the change is okay. I like it, it's great. And then of course, right after that, it's gonna be time to change again. (laughs)
0: And the one thing that's going to be constant in everybody's world is change. And and even by sometimes just labeling it change, we create that an intentional fear, don't we? Because it's a label, it's a thing versus it's just going to happen. We're always going to evolve, but we may not be able to connect the dots forward. But when we look back, we certainly can do that, can't we?
1: Yeah, hence the reason that AQ now is so critical and will become more critical going forward, because the, ch- the pace of change is going to continue to speed up and be dramatic. And I, I think that we're seeing this worldwide right now. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to overwhelm a lot of people, but it's also going to give other people strength and courage to understand that I can do this, that if I stay focused and I stay calm and I'm persistent, that I can handle this level of change. And I believe when we come on the other side of this, people are going other changes that up until now would have seemed pretty dramatic, will seem pretty mundane and easy to handle. And it'll create a new foundation of resilience, I think, for us all, won't it, as we come through the other
0: side. And I think without AQ, we probably won't be able to cope.
1: Agreed. And I love the word you just used, resilience. Uh, We're going to need courage, vulnerability and resilience to get through this. Well, extremely well said, Steve. Thank you, John. This part of the show,
0: we're going to ask all our guests to share their golden nuggets, the secrets. Now, when you've read thousands of books, as you have, I should imagine to narrow that down to three is going to be a massive challenge, but I'm going to send you the task. So if you could identify what would be the top three leadership hacks, what would they be? Uh,
1: Number one, uh, which is the most important thing I've ever learned, it was in one of my, I've done two TEDx talks, is dedicate yourself to lifelong learning. You've seen a theme through all that, but if you study successful leaders through time. Uh, They were avid learners, not just readers, but they were curious. You used that word earlier, curious. So stay curious. Be, um, I like to say, addicted to learning. That would be my first uh, nugget. Number two is ask for help. Uh, You can't do this alone, Uh, which leads to the third one, which is a combination of the two. And the single most important thing I've ever learned in my life, which is you become what you focus on, and like the people you spend time with. Whatever you're studying, whatever you're reading, whatever you're learning, whatever you fill your mind with, and whoever you choose to spend your time with, will directly determine what your life will look like a decade from now.
0: I love those top three acts. Thank you. I remember when I was in San Francisco, I was talking to a seed fund investor, and his little nugget was your net worth equals your net work. Exactly.
1: There's uh, a good friend of mine, Tim Sanders, wrote a book uh, called Love is the Killer App, and he broke it down to these three things. Uh, K, N, and L, to be successful in your career, you must be bright, sharp, smart, and talented as something that's highly valuable in the marketplace. That's the K, knowledge. Number two, the network, you, the N is network. A lot of the right people need to know that, that, that about you. And by right people, that's what I call hubs. People that, if they're really impressed with how much you know and how valuable it is, they don't tell two or three people. They'll they tell 20 or 30 or 200 or 300 or 2000 through their giant networks, as long as you have the last one, the L, which is love. If you're a kind, loving person of integrity, a lot of the right people know that about you. And they also know that you're really good at something that's highly valuable. You have the foundation for a world-class career. We've got a double bubble on our hacks.
0: Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) The next thing I'd really love to explore is that having the extensive career and indeed learning from all of the things that you've experienced, there's bound to be a time where things haven't worked out so well or maybe we screwed up. We call this hack to attack in the Leadership Hacker podcast. What would be your hack to attack that you could share with
1: our listeners? This is one that took me 20, 25 years to learn. I'm a very, very logical, data-driven person. I like information, ideas, research, numbers, blah, blah, blah. And I was really against the idea of leading with your gut. But what I've learned over the years, and it's because I have entered into partnerships or business arrangements or hired people, that there were red flags. And I felt a little uncomfortable. I felt a little easy. But I'd be like, I don't feel decisions. I make decisions on facts. I realize now that when I see a couple red flags and I start to feel like something's wrong, that I ought to listen to that. And more often than not, that should be a major determinant in my decision making, which is very hard for me to say, but it's been I've made many failures because I didn't listen to my emotions and my feelings and my concerns and my worries. It's really fascinating. Thank you, John. And I've
0: done lots of research on this too. And this is comes from a neurological response to the pattern recognition that we're unconsciously aware of. So when we're scanning thousands and thousands and thousands of situations, we may only be able to present or identify with one or two things in front of us. But in the unconscious mind, it's scanning millions and millions and millions of experiences through our life and our work. And it's giving that dopamine in our brains a little nudge to say, pay attention to this. And of course, whilst we can't use our gut as the defining, it's definitely true, we should absolutely pay attention to it. Yeah, that was a very hard lesson for me to learn. But you've learned that. And as a result of learning from it, it's now paying dividend for you in your life and your work. So uh, well done, I thank you. And then the last thing we want to explore with you would be that if you were able to turn the clock back and do a bit of time travel and you bump into John at 21, what would be the one bit of advice that you would give him?
1: Wow, that is really hard. I, I think it would be to stay really curious and ask for help. And we've covered those because they've been so fundamental to, the, to me building a great career. And early in my career, I was very confident I was right. I would argue with people. No, I'm right. I got this. I understand it better than you do. I would argue with people 30 years older than me. And then one day I woke up and realized I'm not right. <laughs> I have an opinion. Uh, I have a way that I see things from my perspective. And it's, it's, a, it's a well thought out and well reasoned opinion, but it's just an opinion. So I would have said to myself, you know, you're not right. Uh, stay curious. Ask for help. Lots of other people have other ways to look at things and they're just as right as you are. So calm down. Just calm down, John. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you, John. That's super. So- as folk are listening into us talk today, I'm fairly sure that they'll be thinking, John's mentioned TEDx and also um, books and information. How can people get to learn a little bit more about what you're doing now and find some of the content that you've been able to create over your career?
1: My website is johnspence.com, johnspence.com. But I'm going to really encourage folks, I've got to sign up for my blog slash newsletter. I've got a newsletter that comes out every two weeks. And it is based on all of the stuff I'm reading. When I read a really good article, something fantastic that I'm impressed with, I tweet it and my newsletter grabs all those tweets. But here's the cool thing. It's driven by AI. It's got an algorithm there. When when you open a, my newsletter and you start to read stuff, it watches what you open, how long you read it, and it it figures out what you're interested in. And it continues to customize your newsletter more and more and more on the things that are of the most interest to you. So as, as it continues to go, it gets smarter and smarter. And I'm, I load probably 300 articles in it a month, and it'll only pick the top dozen or so that it, fit, that it knows that you're going to be most interested in. And then I only write a blog when it's something, again, I feel strongly about. I don't put one out every week. I just put one out when there's something that I feel is valuable for folks to read. So if you get to my, my website, sign up for the newsletter. It, just sign up for the blog. You get both. And that will give you direct access to everything I'm reading and studying right now. And machine learning doing all the hard work for us. What could be better?
0: <laughs> John, uh, that's kind of um, brought us to our natural conclusion for us spending some time together today. I just wanted to say it's been super, super useful. There's some great models some great thinking in there that are going to help our listeners go away and reflect on their approach to reading and commitment to lifelong learning. And I'm hopeful this podcast will also help create the energy and excitement around the foundations for AQ. John Spence, thank you for joining us on the Leadership Hacker podcast.
1: Absolutely my honor and my pleasure. Thank you. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for
0: taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker.